Matthew chapter 1 and then Luke chapter 2. And while you're turning to those, let me mention that um, a week from this Wednesday, we have a blood drive here at the church. And during the COVID crisis, there is an extreme shortage of blood. And if you are interested and inclined to participate in that, there are some flyers out in the foyer that you can pick up. And um, it'll give you details. You do have to register ahead of time if you want to participate. You have to go online and do that. And we would appreciate your support uh, during this season. Uh, we're going to read first from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 18, and then we'll flip over to Luke chapter 2. And these two accounts are accounts of the birth of Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 reads as follows. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man <clears throat> and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place of what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might both fulfill, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Now, if you would turn over to Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 6. <clears throat> it says, And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their fields by night, over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger." And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things that were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Keep your Bibles open, if you would please, to Luke chapter 2. And on the way in, you should have received a sheet of paper with this kind of an outline of thought that I'm going to cover this morning 
as we consider the birth of Christ as we find it in these accounts. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, open <clears throat> the simple events that are recounted for us here in your word. Open our hearts to the deep and profound significance for our lives, not only for all in eternity, but for our everyday lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Several decades ago, colleges, um, many of whom had departments of theology, changed the name of those departments from departments of theology to departments of religion. Now, that may not seem like much of a significant transition, but it really was. And the significance of it had to do with turning away students from the study of God to the study of religion, which was our response to God. Instead of talking about God, it, was, it, it centered more on talking about our response to God. And this transition birthed the popular notion today that for us to really understand the truth about God, we need to do what's called comparative studies. We need to do comparative studies of the various religions, take the good we can find from the different religions, put it all together, and that's our best chance to find the truth. Now, some people think that these comparative religion studies are a waste of time in a way that they are, but I, for one, happen to like them. And the reason why I like them is because any reasonable person who studies world religions will soon reach the conclusion that Christianity, because of its consistency and its coherency, is the most authentic, it is the superlative of all religions. And not only does it dramatize the superiority of Christianity, but it also dramatizes the incomparableness of Jesus when compared with other religious founders. And if you've ever done such a study, you'll be amazed at how obvious it is when you look at the comparisons, how Christianity, like cream, rises to the surface very quickly. I've done a lot of study on the uniqueness of Jesus. It's a topic of great interest to me. And no matter how you look at this from a number of different ways, um, the person of Christ and what's recorded for us in the Bible brings us to a place of deep appreciation for who he is, especially in comparison to other religious founders. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to take the event that we celebrate in the month of December, the birth of Christ, and I want to dramatize for you how unique and how powerful his birth was in the events that surrounded it. But first of all, let's do a little comparison. Let's take a look at some of the founders of major religions, and let's see if anything significant happened at their birth when they were born, and then we will look at the events that surrounded the, the, the birth of Christ when he was born. Let's look first of all at Judaism. Abraham is the founder of Judaism, and we don't know much about his birth. After all, he was born over 4,000 years ago. But there is an interesting account in the book of Jasher, a book that's quoted in the Old Testament, the book of Joshua in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And it tells us this account of what happened on the night that Abraham was born. Listen to it. I'll read it to you. It says, And it was in the night that Abram was born that all the servants of Terah, that's Abram's father, and all the wise men of Nimrod and his conjurers came and ate and drank in the house of Terah, the father, and they rejoiced with him on that night. 
And when all the wise men and conjurers went out from the house of Terah, they lifted up their eyes toward the heavens that night to look at the stars, and they saw, and behold, one very large star came from the east and ran in the heavens, and he swaddled up four stars from the four other sides of heaven. And all the wise men of the king and his conjurers were astonished at this sight, and the sages understood this matter, and they knew its import." And they said to each other, This only betokens a child that has been born to terror this night, who will grow up, be fruitful and multiply, and possess all the earth, and he and his children forever, and he and his seed will slay great kings, and they will inherit, inherit great lands. An interesting account, to say the least, of what happened at Abram's birth. But I have to admit, as I read it, maybe you too, that it sounds a bit fanciful. But that's the event that's reported to have happened on the night Abraham was born. Let's look at Buddha, who founded Buddhism. His name was formerly Siddhartha Gautama, and he grew up the son of a ruler of the Shakaya clan. His mother died after he gave birth. Uh, she died seven days after giving birth. And his father, who was a wealthy nobleman, to protect his son from the miseries and suffering of the world, raised him in opulence in a palace built just for the boy and sheltered him from the knowledge of religion, hardship, and the outside world. The account goes like this, that a holy man at the time of Buddha's birth said this. He prophesied great things for the young Siddhartha. He would either be a great king, a great military leader, or he would be a great spiritual leader. It seems that Buddha checked the third box. He ended up being a great spiritual leader and went on to found Buddhism. Buddhism is not really a religion. It only, it doesn't have any defined beliefs about God. It simply studies how to deal with the problem of suffering. <clears throat> 500 or 600 years after Jesus was born, we also have an account of Muhammad's birth. Um, Muhammad's father, his name was Abdullah, died six months before Muhammad was born. And at the age of six, Muhammad lost his biological mother, Amina, to an illness, and he became an orphan, and he was raised by his paternal grandfather. This account is given what happened on the night that Muhammad was born. It says, on the exact day our prophet Muhammad was born, all the statues and idols in and around the Kaaba must miraculously tumble to the ground. At the time of his birth, a shining light appeared by which Amina, his mother, could see the palaces of Persia. Allah alone was behind these acts. Was this not an indication of how important this date was in Islam? So we have that account surrounding Muhammad's birth. Now, other major religions, Confucianism was founded by Confucius. Uh, he was born in obscurity. The accounts we have of his birth are very obscure. Some say he was born into wealth. Some say he was born into poverty. We don't really know. Laozi, who founded Taoism, uh, lived a completely obscure life. He was a contemporary of Confucius, and we don't know much about his life either. So of all the major religions and their founders, we have these accounts of what happened at the birth of these religious leaders. Now, let's do what we said we were going to do. Let's compare those accounts, just briefly, let's, having referenced those. Now let's look at the account of the birth of Christ. Let's look at these supernatural events that surrounded his birth as they're recounted for us in Luke, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through, uh, 18 through chapter 2, verse 23, 
in Luke chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through chapter 2, verse 39. Now, what I want you to pay attention to here are the number of times we observe divine intervention surrounding the events that immediately related to the birth of Christ. Then the Old Testament came to a point of conclusion in the year 425 B.C. We don't hear another word from the Lord in terms of authoritative revelation until we get to the New Testament. And all of this is set in motion one day when a man by the name of Zacharias, who was a priest, he was selected by lottery to enter into the Holy of Holies to burn incense to the Lord. While Zacharias was in the temple, and by the way, he was a man who was described in the Bible as righteous and holy, along with his wife Elizabeth, it says they were blameless, but they were also childless. They were up in years. And so the event that sets the plan of redemption into motion happens on the day when Zacharias goes into the temple and an angel of the Lord appears to the right by the altar of the incense, according to what we're told in the Gospel of Luke. And this angel um, gives to John what's called a pregnancy announcement. He says, John, he, says, he says, Zacharias, don't be afraid. Your prayers have been answered. But your wife is going to bear a child. Uh, he is going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never going to touch any alcohol or liquor. He's going to serve as a forerunner for the Messiah, and when these things happen, it will make the ears of all those who know about it tingle. And Zacharias at the time was unbelieving when he heard this, and he voiced his doubts, and he says, I'm an older man, and my wife is advanced in years. How is this going to happen? And the angel says, well, I'll tell you what. I'm Gabriel, who stand in the presence of God. The message I'm delivering to you is going to happen I'm going to give you nine months to think about it because you didn't believe, so you will not be able to speak until your child is born. And so Zacharias was in the temple longer than he should have been. The people were wondering why he was there. So he emerges from the temple, and he can't speak, but he's making sign languages, and they knew that he had seen a vision of an angel, a vision of the Lord. And so God's revelation begins to unfold related to the Messiah through this appearance of the angel to the forerunner regarding the forerunner. Then his wife, Elizabeth, conceives in her old age. She was so surprised that she kept herself in conclusion for five years. And so by divine intervention, this elderly woman conceives a child. And during that time, during her pregnancy, the angel that had appeared to Zacharias went about 100 miles north to appear to a young woman named Mary who was in Nazareth. And the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, and so we have another angelic appearance, and says to her that she has found favor with the Lord and that she is going to bear a child. This child is going to be great, sit upon the throne of David, and his name shall be called Jesus. And Mary, just like Zacharias, was wondering how this was going to work. And so in faith she said, now I'm still a virgin, never been with a man, how is this conception going to occur? And notice that she didn't ask in a spirit of doubt like Zacharias. She asked in a spirit of faith. So in a sense, this was faith seeking understanding. She says, how is this going to occur? And the angel says that the Holy Spirit of God is going to overshadow you. The Spirit of God is going to bring a con the conception about within you. 
and therefore this child will be known as the Son of God. And she responds by saying, be, done unto, be it done unto me according to your word. Now, the issue with Mary being a virgin is another complicating issue, and that is that she was engaged at the time. And she was engaged to a young man named Joseph. And in Matthew's account, we're told that Joseph, when he found out that his wife was going to have a baby, that he, he decided as a righteous man to put her away quietly so as not to embarrass her. But another divine intervention occurs when an angel appears to Joseph and said, what is happening in the womb of your fiance is of God. She has conceived of the Holy Spirit. We're going to call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. And all of this is in fulfillment to an Old Testament prophecy made 700 years previously that unto a virgin a child would be born and we would call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Joseph obediently listened took Mary in as his wife and kept her a virgin until the baby was born. And so another event happens prior to the birth of Christ. It's also significant that we'll look at, and then we'll talk about the birth of Christ itself. When Mary conceived this child, it says that she made her way to Judea where her cousin Elizabeth was. And it says that when she entered into the home where Elizabeth was, who at that point was six months pregnant, with John the Baptist, that the baby leaped inside of Elizabeth, and Elizabeth prophesied that the Spirit of God had filled this young baby in his mother's womb, and that Elizabeth properly and correctly discerned that Mary was going to be the mother of the Messiah, and that John the Baptist in her womb would be the precursor or forerunner for that. And so they exchange a, uh, a, they have a pleasant exchange and both of them speak in glory to God. And Mary stays with Elizabeth for three months and then she returns home. And at that point, Elizabeth gives birth to a child. His name is John. And there's some debate about what we're going to call this child until uh, Zacharias, the father, who's not been able to speak for nine months, takes a pad, a paper, and writes down, his name is John. And as soon as he writes that down, suddenly his tongue is loosed and he begins to speak in glory of God. So these are all events that occurred prior to the birth of Christ. They occurred to set up the birth of Christ, which is now recorded for us in both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. But in most detail, it's recorded in the gospel of Luke. So let's now move to the event that we celebrate during Christmas, and that is the actual birth of Christ. Now, another event happens that shapes the birth of Christ very significantly, and that is a ruler by the name of Caesar Augustus declared a census be taken of all the earth. And Mary, who was great with child, they were up in Nazareth with Joseph. They had to travel down to Joseph's hometown or where he was registered, and that was the city of Bethlehem. So it's about a, a, about a three-day journey, I think, and, this, and Mary, who was eight and a half months pregnant, had to make her way all the way down up into the hill country of Judea. And it says, while she was there, and they were registering for the census, that she gives birth to this child. And this is where our heartstrings are kind of pulled a little bit, because it says that they were in a stable, and that she wrapped this baby in swaddling clothes and put him in a manger. And a manger is really nothing more than a feeding trough for animals. 
And it says that they were in the stable because there was no room for them at the end. Now, you can only imagine how far these expectations were from what Mary envisioned for the birth of her child than what actually happened. Quite a humble birth. And so while they're in this stable in Bethlehem with a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a feeding trough, there's another divine intervention that's very significant. The divine intervention is that the angels appears to shepherds. Now, if you got your Bible open to Luke chapter 2, I want you to notice verses 10 and 11, because this is the actual birth announcement that accompanies the Messiah. The angel says to them, as he suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around him, the angel says to them, do not be afraid, for I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all people. For today in the city of David there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now the angelic appearances previously were pregnancy announcements. This is a birth announcement. And so Jesus being born occurs and then we have this definition to help us understand the significance of this birth. It says, behold, I bring you good news, which is the word for the gospel that we preach here every Sunday, of a great joy. The word great here for great joy is the word megaphone, which means a resounding joy this child is born into. And this great joy and this good news is for everyone. In other words, you don't have to be a certain economic status or you don't have to be of a certain caste like in India to participate in this. Uh, this joy is for, this good news is for all the people. For today in the city of David, that is Bethlehem, and the scripture does designate Jerusalem and Bethlehem as the city of David. And in this case, it applies to Bethlehem. It says there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So here definition and identity is given to this child being born. There's a Savior born, and the word Savior is a transliteration of the Old Testament name Joshua, which means to save. A Savior has been born who is Christ, and the word Christ means anointed one or Messiah. And then it says that this baby also bears the evidence of being God. It had deity. So this Savior, who was the Messiah, was also the Son of God. And so this announcement tells us very definitively who Jesus is, why he came, who his identity is, and what he came to do. There's nothing sketchy or vague about this. And then it says to the, uh, he said, the angel says to the shepherds, and this will be a sign for you. If you will go to Bethlehem, you'll find this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, just like I told you. As soon as the angel said that, a multitude of angelic hosts appeared, and they uttered the real famous statement that is associated with Christmas, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom is well pleased. And so this multitude of heavenly hosts suddenly disappears, another divine intervention. And so the shepherds look at one another and says, let's go check this out. Let's go see this for ourselves. So they go to Bethlehem, into the city, and remember that shepherds back in that day were common, everyday people. There was nothing elite about shepherds. They weren't the intelligentsia of that day. They weren't the religious leaders of that day. They were working class people that were out in the field, staying up all night watching their flocks. 
But these common, ordinary people find their way to Bethlehem, and they find the baby just as the angel had told them that it would be, corroborating evidence. And so the shepherds share with Mary and Joseph what the angel had told them. This child is born to do something particularly messianic, missional, and specific. He's going to be the savior of the world, and this is good news for all people. And it says that once they shared that birth announcement with Mary and Joseph, that everybody was astonished by what they heard. And it goes on to say that they treasured, Mary treasured in her heart, these particular words. Now, these are the events that led up to the birth of Christ. Then we have the birth of Christ accounted. Now, I want to just call your attention briefly to events that occurred after the birth of Christ to confirm this amazing birth. Eight days after Jesus is born, they take Jesus to the temple, and he's circumcised. Forty days after he's born, they take Jesus to the temple so that he will be dedicated. And we're told that while Jesus was in the temple, a baby 40 days old, roughly a month and a half, that two historical figures come up to the Holy Family and comment about this child. The first one is a man named Simeon. We're told in Luke's gospel that he was an elderly man and that it had been revealed to him that he was going to see the Messiah. He was going to lay eyes on Messiah before he would leave planet Earth. And so this man, Simeon, walks up to the Holy Family, embraces the baby by holding the baby Jesus, and then pronounces this remarkable prophetic statement over him that lets Mary and Joseph know that, yes, there is something unique and specific about this child, and that is this child is going to be cause the rise and fall of many through faith. Alongside of Simeon, there was a woman named Anna. She was a prophetess, and I understand that she, from the Scriptures, that she spent much of her time uh, after she had lost her husband, after seven years of marriage, she spent most of her time in the temple. And it says that this woman comes up and also begins to bless the baby Jesus in a very specific way and begins to tell people that those of you that are looking for the consolation of Israel, it's all wrapped up in this baby. So a little bit more time elapses, and then we come to the final major event that affirms that Jesus is who the Bible says that he is. A few months after this, three men, or a group of men rather, show up in Bethlehem known as the Magi. And this group of men, we don't know exactly who they were, but they were probably experts in astrology, medicine, and natural science. And mysteriously, this star had appeared in the east, and they followed this star, and it led them to Jerusalem. And so they arrive in the city amidst great stir and asked, where is this child who has been born so that we can worship them? And Herod, Herod the Great, who was reigning over Israel at that time, a very cruel, cruel, uh, canny type king, called together all of his prophets and his priests and said, where, where's this news about the Messiah being born? And they said, well, it's going to happen in a little city called Bethlehem. So he calls the Magi together and he says, it's supposed to happen in Bethlehem. When you find the child, come back and let me know about it so I can worship him too. 
So they head toward, <clears throat> excuse me, Bethlehem, which is just south of Jerusalem, not very far. And the star appears and leads them to the child. Now, the child is not wrapped in swaddling clothes, and the child is not still in a manger, but they're in a home. So some time has passed. And so the Magi come in, and it says that when they saw this child, they fell down and worshipped him. Notice it doesn't say that they came to honor him or to simply present gifts to him, which they did, but they came to worship him. And worshiping a baby at the early stages of a baby's life, that's unimaginable. They had supernatural insight into the identity of this child as being the Son of God. So they worshiped him with three gifts, and this is why we tend to think that there were three wise men. They presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Any significance to those gifts? Probably. Let me suggest a few things to you. Gold back in that day symbolized royalty. This baby that they were worshiping was a king. Frankincense, which was most often offered in the temple, symbolized deity. So gold symbolized royalty, frankincense emphasized deity. And then thirdly, there's myrrh. And that's an interesting substance that's most often associated with the embalming of dead bodies. Which perhaps tells us that this child who was born was born to die. The good news about the gospel is not that Jesus came to live a life that would save us, which he did. But the focal point of the gospel is not on Jesus' life, but upon his death. And these three gifts subtly presage the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And then it says, after they had worshipped him, this baby, that an angel appeared to them and says, don't go back through Jerusalem. Find another way back, for Herod's going to try to destroy him. Then an angel, the final divine intervention events that we see in the account of Jesus is that an angel appears to Joseph three times protectively. First to send them down to Egypt so that Herod can't get to the baby Jesus. After Herod had died, an angel appeared to Joseph down in Egypt and said, safe for you to go back. And then when he got back up to Jerusalem, uh, that area, Judea rather, another angelic appearance said, Go to Nazareth, where he will grow up, so that he will be called a Nazarene. Now, these are the events that were antecedent to the birth of Christ. Here's the birth of Christ in detail. And then thirdly, here's the events that occurred in the aftermath of his birth. Divine intervention is seen throughout this event. It's not sketchy, and it's not... Uh, obscure, but it's extremely specific. And all that was prophesied and stated that would occur at the birth of Christ unfolds and goes on to, ha to happen, which confirms the identity, the purpose, and the mission of the Messiah, Jesus. So if we just take this one aspect of the life of Christ and compare it to all other religions and other religious founders, what you can see is that the concise coherence 
and the simple historicity of these facts confirm the authenticity and the uniqueness of Jesus. Now, we're here over the next few weeks to celebrate the birth of Christ. And what I've simply tried to do you today is give you a little bit of insight into the profound spiritual and theological significance of his birth. We're not here to worship Christmas. Heard a Christmas carol on the way to church today about worshiping Christmas. No, that's not what we do. We're here to worship Jesus. And what we see here from the birth of Christ are these simple, profound things. Number one, how significant was it when man set foot on the moon? Most of you are old enough to remember that. I do. But how much more significant was it when God set foot on the earth? What is the difference between Christianity and religion? Religion is man's efforts to get to God. Remember those departments of religion in universities now? Religion is man's efforts to get to God. Christianity is God's efforts to get to us. That's why Jesus came down upon the earth. So let me conclude with this simple little statement that is my favorite Christmas saying. We used to put it on, the, on a banner on a fence in front of my church that I served in Florida for 20 years. 40,000 cars passed the church every day, and we wanted them to see this simple little message. And the message was this. Wise men still seek him. Remember that during the Christmas holiday. Wise men, women, and children still seek him for good reason. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, <clears throat> you devised an amazing way one no one could ever conceive or make up we could not have engineered this it happened through the expression of 15 or so divine interventions into human history that confirmed the supernatural nature of the birth of Christ confirmed the authenticity of his identity and who he was and now as we look back in retrospect, everything that was said about him and what he, he was sent to do, he did it. And more. And now we enjoy here on this earth not only life abundant, but we are looking forward to life eternal. It's all bound up in the birth of a baby in such a way that our hearts are stirred and our minds are filled with awe as we consider this amazing event. As the world dances to the tune of Christianity for the next four weeks, may we be reminded, oh Lord, we're not here to worship Christmas. We're, worship, we're here to worship Christ who brought about Christmas. Fill our hearts with wonder, joy, and awe as we ponder all that you've done for us and all that has come to pass. Through him, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. 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 Would you stand and worship?
the Lord with awe and wonder. He's worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever give. He's worthy the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever save. He's worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Oh, we live for you. In Jesus, the only. 